0: Welcome back to the Hello Histories podcast. With me today is Professor Mark Yankovic, who will be introducing our screening of The Tomb of Legia on the 26th of January at the Norwich Auditorium. Tickets are available through our Eventbrite. It's free entry, it's free wine, and um, it's a really fascinating film filmed in Castle Lake Priory, just north of the city and in locations throughout Norfolk. It's the last of Roger Corman's Poe cycle, stars Vincent Price and Elizabeth Shepherd. And, uh, Mark, what is it about Tumor Legia that makes it so fascinating that gives it such a place in the history of horror cinema?
1: Well, there are a number of things that are really interesting about Legia. <coughs> it's the last of the uh, Corman Poe adaptations. Um, and it's, it's interesting that one of the kings of low budget filmmaking should end up in Norfolk um, filming and uh, in East Anglia filming. Um, What I've been doing is a research project around um, transformations in horror from really the 50s through to the uh, late 60s. And what one can see in Legia is the ways in which it is a response to a series of different trends within film production at the time. Um, Often, Corman is seen as a low-budget filmmaker, Legere is in no sense a low-budget film. It may be much smaller budget than the major studio productions of the time, but it was still vastly different to the kinds of films that uh, Corman had made his name on in the mid to late
0: 50s. Sure, which were the classic kind of B-pictures, weren't they? Yeah, they? films
1: yeah. like um, The Day the World Ended or um, It Conquered the World and so forth.
0: These are, these
1: are low-budget films designed for a low-budget audience, um, often... Uh, seen as drive-in movies mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, what happens in the late sixties is that in sorry, what happens in the late fifties is that um, AIP has seen the example of, of uh, Hammer, who have successfully broken out of low-budget filmmaking into what's called the middle bracket, into right. getting into um, the first-run cinemas in major metropolitan areas in America. Um, they're not competing with the studios, but Mm -hmm. this is a period when the studios have lost interest in this section of the market and are focusing on big roadshow productions, big productions like The Sound of Music and so forth, that they can show and that can be really event films that bring people in from wide areas. Um, These big productions become the focus of the studio Efforts and that leaves independent cinemas and, um, and uh, independent filmmakers to, um, to fill in the gaps.
0: And Roger Corman is kind of the, the king of this. He's, uh, like I say, low-budget, on-time, kind of uh, pleasing-the-crowd yeah. kind of films. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so what you get is um, AIP says to Corman, we want you to make a film, and we want you to make a film for a massively increased budget. We don't want a film like you've been making before. We want it to be colour. Sure. We want it to be period. We want it to look expensive.
0: So it's a Roger Corman film that doesn't look like a Roger Corman film. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. Um, Now, of course, they still want a Roger Corman film. They want a Roger Corman film that will get the traditional Roger Mm. Corman audience. They want a core audience that they can rely on. That's become teenagers for whom one of the key... um, uh, genres for teenagers in the late fifties is the horror film, but what they want is a film that won't just play to teenagers that can stretch beyond. That's why they wanted to go for, you know, cl- what appears to be classical. Um, sure, yeah. Uh, it's got the fancy
0: Poe. It's got like a period kind of thing. It, it looks beautiful, doesn't it? It Doesn't yeah, look like absolutely. A, yeah,
1: and you know that becomes one of the key features of them is their set design. Their, their ability to make relatively modest budgets look ve- much more expensive than they are. Mm. And so what you get is a kind of stratified market um, in, in the late 50s and early 60s. You get a low end, which Corman had, had specialised in. You get increasingly, as the 60s moves on, the studios moving back and mm. experimenting. So... Um, the same year that Corman makes uh, Fall of the House of Usher, the first of the Poe films, um, there are a number of major studio horror films
0: where they're, they're also Sure, this is different. like the early 60s Renaissance, so you've got um, *Rosemary's Baby, you've got uh, The Other, I think, around that time.
1: Well, what, yeah, but that's the late 60s. Ah. I think one of the interesting things is 1960, mm-hmm. where you get a series of um, attempts at major studio um, dabbling, in oh, horror, right. my f- uh, you know the most obvious and the most um, famous is, pro- is probably something yeah. Um But what people forget is there is another one starring Doris Day. Um, uh, there is a Doris Day horror film produced by Ross Hunter, mm-hmm. who um, had made some of the uh, Douglas Sirk melodramas sure, of the period, sure. and um, and starring John Gavin, who would appeared in some of those. Oh, God. Um, Don't keep me
0: suspense. What was it?
1: Midnight Lace, in which uh, uh, Doris Day plays an heiress mm-hmm. who um, has recently married a suave, sophisticated husband played by Rex Harrison, oh, yes. and then starts to hear she she's moved to London and um, strange voices start coming out in the fog, threatening her. People think she's going mad. Is oh, is she it mad? gaslight? It's just gaslight. It's gaslight. Oh, okay, right. And um, and uh, there are a number of these um, as the as the. Um, decade moves on, there is uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, sure. but around the same time, you've got things like Cape Fear, mm-hmm. you've got... Um, Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter. Well... Oh, right, that, that's a little earlier, though, That's isn't it? a little earlier. That's kind of predates it. But, yeah. um, but you've got uh, Cape Fear, which is a Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum um, prestige, but very sure. horrific, um, and sold very much around its horror. Um... There's another one. I'm to, there's, there's also, surprisingly, a Blake Edwards horror film, Experiment mm-hmm. in Terror, in which Lee Remick oh, yes. is another terrorized woman, terrified, terrorized by a maniac um, who's trying to blackmail her. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a series of ways, what you get is this period where the studios are playing with things. Sure. They're, like, say, they're dabbling. Um, then they're yeah, not quite da- sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I think this is the other interesting thing, which is about Legia, is that it's, it's AIP, mm-hmm. therefore, that experiments with a whole series of materials that the um, studios will embrace by the late 60s. Mm. Um, as the roadshow productions start to become increasingly risky phenomena, famously around things like uh, Cleopatra, mm-hmm. a film that did make phenomenal amounts of money, but not cost, enough money. money yeah. Well, it, did, it, it actually didn't. If you look at the budget for something like Cleopatra, uh, sorry, I'll rephrase that. If you look at the earnings for Cleopatra, mm. they're phenomenal. Cleopatra is an incredibly successful movie. Mm-hmm. The problem with Cleopatra is that MGM really isn't making any other movies that year. I see. That it's throwing its full weight and um, as. Uh, as the director, complains um, repeatedly, um, every cost of running that studio got put onto his bottom line. Mm. The the trouble was that film had to pay for an entire studio executive, all their lunches, all their um, secretarial staff, all the studio lot, everything was on the back of that one movie. That's a hell of a risk, isn't it? It's a hell of a risk. And that's the... um, that becomes the problem of the roadshow strategy. Mm. So in the late 1960s, well, from really the mid-1960s, the studios start to to change strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start to, to become interested in the first-run market again, the major metropolitan cinemas. Um, and they, they start thinking, well, how do we break back in? Mm. And what do we, what's a good strategy for those? And that's when they start doing things like appointing people like um, Robert Evans. Evans um, is appointed by Paramount. And his strategy is precisely, and what he's hired for is precisely to pursue the teen market.
0: Sure. And this is what we call the new Hollywood. And this this is... The renaissance, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so what you get is this renaissance of Hollywood, this new Hollywood, which is, interestingly,
0: very, very, very connected with the
1: AIP strategy.
0: Um, So... Yeah, I mean, a lot of these directors got their start with Corman, didn't they? Or w- were connected with him in some way? Yeah, I mean, you know,
1: one of the people who becomes very much a figure of the, um, in stardom terms, is Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson starts with Roger Corman. Yeah, he's in um, the Terror, he's in a lot of the, kind yeah, of the early he's in, stuff. Uh, yeah. He's in the original um, the Bucket trip. of Blood. Yeah, oh, Bucket of Blood, absolutely. Um, yeah. well, you know, which is remade as a Little Shop of Horrors later. And um, so. Um he's very much a Corman star, mm. but becomes a key figure of the um of the new Hollywood. Um you also um get people like um Legere is written by Robert Town. Mm-hmm. Robert Town will then write the film that transforms um or is seen as the kind of setting in stone the kind of uh the the Hollywood Renaissance, which is Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Um uh there are but there are other figures knocking around i mean sure. at, the, at the same time um you have uh the low budget end is heavily associated with someone like william castle mm-hmm. um you have um, an art house tradition of horror which is exemplified and has a phenomenal hit in um in 65 with repulsion yes absolutely and of course all these elements start being brought together mm. evans hires Castle mm-hmm. um, and um, and Roman Plansky he um, for his big first big film in this, um, which is Roman's baby. Mm-hmm. He brings together television stars like Mia Farrow with art house stars like um, John Savettis who is one of the champions and the um, darlings of the underground circuit. In Absolutely, um, but he puts them together with with hollywood stars stars of the old hollywood who'll be recognized by the parents and, and so forth and so there's a kind of an attempt in these films to bring together the art house kind of materials that have proved very successful through the 60s the horror materials that proved very successful um with elements of the um of old Hollywood and reference yeah. points to And, of course, Hollywood. with Hollywood
0: budgets and kind of that yeah. kind of access to resources, so you get beautiful-looking B-pictures, really, things like The Omen or The Exorcist, which are yeah know, studio pictures. They look beautiful, but they have got that horror kind of DNA to them.
1: Absolutely, and that's one of the things that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting, for example, that when you've moved into the 70s, and um, the 70s is a fascinating period in... Precisely the continuation of that tradition. So that The Exorcist, um, which is made by Friedkin, mm-hmm. Friedkin is someone who starts off playing with, um, playing with art house traditions. Yeah, he's absolutely. in Britain in, in the late 60s um, where he's trying to make a film about the Moors' murders and doesn't succeed mm. for censorship reasons, but does make his first film, which is a f- film adaptation of a Harold Pinter play. Um, caretaker? Uh, caretaker? No, it's not The Caretaker, it's The Birthday Party, I oh, think. Oh, of course, yes, absolutely. Um, um, now, what's interesting about that adaptation is that, therefore, you have freaking associating themselves with one of the you know, real um, uh, highbrow theatrical um, properties mm. of the 60s and British um, but it's produced by Milton Skabotsky, really? who, um, <laughs> who was uh, at the time running Amicus and mm. was making the a series of horror portmanteau yeah, films. absolutely. So what you find is this is a fascinating period where people are constantly borrowing from one another and there is lots of movement backwards and forwards between the low end, the high end, and and the centre between the art market and the majors between the low-budget end um, and the art market. So, for example, um, one of the things I've been looking at is why the horror boom even starts. Mm. It's quite clear that it's not, as, as is often claimed, um, Psycho, because, of course, there's lots of activity well before Psycho. Sure, absolutely. And psycho is itself a response to that boom. Many people claim it's the um, success of uh, Curse of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But even Curse of Frankenstein becomes clear is actually engineered um, as a film to address an already perceived market need. It's not actually originated by the British. It's originated by the American studio, mm-hmm. who come to the British uh, um, studio, Hammer, because it's got a reputation for making cheap horror. Mm. Um, they, they have the concept of making a gothic horror, the, the American studio, and it's, it's, it's a kind of... Sure, they wanted
0: to repeat the success of the Universal Pictures of the early 30s. It was kind
1: well, of but the question is why they would want to do that in the mid-50s. Now, the, one of the things that's interesting is if one starts saying, so where is the phenomena that kicks off this, um, this late 60s wave, this late 50s wave? What is the phenomena that kicks off this late 50s wave? And I think there are two um, which happen almost exactly at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, as uh, William Castle notes, the reason that he turns to horror is because he note, he's always been interested in horror, but he notes that the moment is right when he witnesses the phenomenal success of a French... Art house horror film, La Diabolique, oh, yes. which is um, becomes a massive success in America in, in the, uh, on the art house circuit in the mid 1950s. Mm. What's interesting about La Diabolique is that it comes out almost exactly the same moment as a, another property, which is um, a phenomenal hit, which is the television series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm. And Alfred Hitchcock Presents is, um, is one of the most successful television shows of its period. It's, um, it's, it's hugely um, influential. In fact, reviews of horror movies, even in the early 60s, are comparing the horror film on the screen, hmm. the big screen, with the horror film on the small screen. Sure. Um, now That's partly because of reruns. Because this is also fifty-seven is also the point when um, the studio starts selling their horror back catalogues to television. Mm. But it's um, but it's also the period at which Alfred Hitchcock's presents becomes a heavily um, um, watched, heavily um, lauded with praise from reviews, Absolutely. phenomenally successful in awards, um, and heavily imitated with a number of other shows. Mm. Um, actually almost more more of my own favourite than Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I love, um, is Boris Karloff's Thriller. Thriller, absolutely. Which is very, very much crafted and very much more self-consciously announced to be a horror show. I think some people remember Alfred Hitchcock Presents as a thriller show, not as a horror show, but it's quite clear from reviews at the time that it was read as horror um, and that it's... um, uh its female producer, Joan Harrison, who is, you know, um a, a major figure in in from the forties through mm-hmm. to the 50s and into the 60s when she's making um Journey to the Unknown for Hammer. Yes. Um is is again very much in the 50s when she's making um Alfred Hitchcock Present talked about as a horror producer, mm-hmm. not as a, simply a thriller producer. Um
0: so in a series of ways, what one has is a whole series of materials kind of uh, crossing over here. And then it's to it go from TV to cinema. Though is that because they can't really show true horror on TV for the real kind of blood and guts? They still have to keep it in the cinema. They still have to. Well, I think the the issue
1: about um about horror and television is an interesting one. It's often seen that um and claimed that um. Horror has a difficult time on television because it can't show blood and guts. Yeah, but it's very important to reckon, remember that blood and guts doesn't become really um, a big feature of film until the change in censorship laws in the late sixties. Mm-hmm. That's when we get the real extreme um, films in the in the um, in the late sixties and early seventies. The classic horror films um, of the uh, of the 1940s and even into the 1950s are, mm. uh, you know, treated by standard um, censorship um, and so forth. Um, and although Hammer plays with the extremity of its horror, oh yes.
0: They make a feature of it. It becomes a part of their selling strategy. It
1: becomes part of their selling strategy, but it's a it's a difficult one for them because, Mm. of course, they've got two markets. They've got the British market, which has introduced the X certificate, Mm. and where they can make a virtue of that. Um, But there's also the American market, where um, where those censorship laws haven't quite changed in quite so. There's a softening, yeah, um, but. not a transformation what's interesting with hammer is that it's um it's had the success with uh with curse of the uh, frankenstein it then makes a series of films in the late 50s um where it tries to move away from the horror mm. so it makes um uh hand of the baskervilles which sure. is yeah. um which is very much made as a kind of as a film that will look like one of its horror films yeah. but will kind of um yeah, be much Christ more yeah Christopher Lee,
0: Peter Cushing again beautiful opulent sets so it's a period thing but it doesn't have the uh, yeah and it had an a day certificate mm-hmm. and
1: so forth and that didn't do very well for it and mm. it, it what it what it kept finding was each time it moved away from from the um from selling its uh itself through horror and trying to extend its its market sure. the opposite happened it lost <laughs> its core market mm. Um, and that became a key problem for it. You can see Hammer repeatedly through the late fifties and um, early sixties trying to break out of mm. a kind of um, an image as a kind of gory horror producer. Sure. Um, and each attempt to break out of that actually is very unsuccessful. Yeah. Um, what then happens is, of course, Hammer changes and one of the things that's really interesting about hammer and it, and hammer as we remember it mm. is that um although we remember hammer as a studio that is based around frankenstein and dracula's mm-hmm. properties that's not a feature of hammer's period from curse of frankenstein to about 65 mm-hmm. it's actually a product of the Fra- of the hammer studios after the major studios have started moving back into the major, um, and have started to compete with them much more aggressively, True. Um, at that point it realises it can't break out. In fact, it's trying to defend its position mm. and retreating. So that what you find is it makes um, Curse of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. It follows that up with a Dracula mm-hmm. logical strategy. That's going to say um, it then is persuaded or. Um, to make a sequel to Frankenstein. On the basis of that, they say, well, we'll make a sequel as long as we, you buy certain other properties, so sure. they sell a package. Mm. And um, those other properties are attempts to move out. Mm-hmm. Um, they they then have this period when they're trying other things. Yeah. Um, they don't really make... Um, between... Uh, 67 and 65, I think they make um, two sequels to Dracula, mm-hmm. one of... Kiss of the Vampire is kind of a yeah. sequel. It's intended to be. Um, and two sequels to... And that's it. Mm-hmm. So there are six films in a, almost a ten year period. The The big production is from 65 onwards. Mm. That's when... They start producing at least one Frankenstein or Dracula per year, sure, and um, and actually increasing that. So, um, then producing one Frankenstein and one Dracula per year, and at one point, actually, two Draculas in one year, I think.
0: God. Um, so, um, oh, that was Satanic Rites in 8072, I think. I'm I not can't quite remember, sure. but
1: Something um, like that. We'll yeah. look it up. It's um. What's interesting, therefore, is that the, the sequelization strategy is very much a a feature of um, Hammer in trouble. Mm. Hammer trying to hold on to its market yeah, and finding... Like you say, on the
0: defensive. Yeah. yeah,
1: kind of having to hold on to its core properties and sell its core properties.
0: Mm.
1: not Rather than a, a Hammer that's trying to break out of that mm-hmm. and, and make Robert Aldrich thrillers, which sure. he makes in
0: the late 50s. Yeah. Or, um, or dinosaur the, pictures it goes back well the dinosaur in time.
1: pictures are interesting because that is um the dinosaur pictures one of the strategies for hammer from the mid60s onwards is to make dinosaur pictures which is part of a larger strategy for making um films sold around female sexual spectacle okay um so is she part of that cycle yeah then? so yeah. You, you, they make Ursula Andress um, in She, they have uh, Racker Welsh in One Million Years BC, and then they start engineering a whole series of other um, stars, usually um, either European or presented as European. Yes. Um, again, because that becomes one of the key selling features of the art house circuit that has been very much organized around. Selling sex.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, um, selling so you can certainly see that in Nietzsche the later Rick films. Gets Twins yeah. of Evil and uh, Vampire Lovers, and it's very. It's yeah. a very fine line they're treading there between uh, softcore pornography and horror. Well,
1: I would well, well. Go, go further <laughs> and say it's not really a... Uh, a um, they're not really treading a line. They're trying to deliberately step backwards <laughs> and forwards. Of Fair enough. Um, and I think that's quite literal. Mm. I mean, I think it's, um, it, is a, it is a period when that is one of the 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 marketing strategies. It's it's quite interesting that um, uh, critics at the time don't make a lot of the sexual content until really after sixty five. Really, um, there isn't really perceived as being strong sexual content in the um, in the uh, Hammer things until after sixty five. In fact, in um, I think it's Ivan Butler's book, he um, he sees the late sixties as the point when Hammer makes the innovation of introducing <laughs> sex into it. Um, I'm not saying that sex isn't there sure. in, in the earlier periods, but it's... Um, well, it's yeah. more implied, isn't it? it it's well,
2: it's, it,
1: it, the, there is the dark, romance elements of, um, the dark romance elements of horror are very much part of it. So sure. there's the famous um, Dracula... Poster where, where it's the strangest love, mm. and it's, uh, but that's a, that's an ongoing that goes right back into the thirties. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, of the the sense of um, horrors, dark romances, um, stories that, that are thrilling, in both kind of terms of fear and sexual fear, mm. um, things that kind of create a certain fristle, mm-hmm. um and
0: and are often seduction narratives. Oh, no, um, absolutely. Even uh. Nosferatu, you kind know, of. Uh, oh, yeah. might not be conventionally good looking, but uh, it's certainly a seduction narrative. Okay, so um, the two get getting, back, getting back to the Tomb of Lygia, they sh- they shot at Castle Acre Priory and other locations in Norfolk. But not the first film to use Norfolk as a location for kind of gothic horror, or the last, because I mean, we've got some real <laughs> classics set around here a General, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw is filmed around here, that kind of thing. What is it about this area you think that um, makes it so attractive to filmmakers?
1: Well, one of the things that's interesting about those examples you used is they're AIP productions. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is interesting is how often um, the films filmed in East Anglia are actually AIP. Now, I don't know, but one of the things that that does, I don't know whether it's self-conscious, I don't know whether AIP was planning this, but it creates a very distinctive look for a lot of these mm-hmm. films. A look that is distinctive, that is tied to a kind of British locations, allows AIP to film in Britain at a time when filming in Britain was cheaper sure. and so forth. Um, but creates a very different look to the hammer look, mm. um, which is still British, but very much a kind of suggests a kind of home counties um, series of locations. There's a very different kind of feel to the, um, to the East Anglian landscapes, and I don't know whether um, that was an intention. Um, but there is also something else which I think is interesting. The East Anglian region has been the home of strange productions for some time. Yeah. At the same time that uh, AIP is filming here, Anglia Television, is building its name as a drama producer Mm -hmm. around precisely the same kinds of uh, senses of the weird, um, the um, senses of kind of psychological thrillers that kind of... Films that border between the psychological thriller, the horror film, and the straight thriller. Yeah, Um, and they're doing that on
0: television as well. Yeah,
1: those are the kind of... That's the kind of what... Television, that's what Anglia's drama image was built around, which is why by the 70s you have um, the highly influential um, Anglia production, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, Mm -hmm. um, which itself is a prototype for one of Anglia's really long running shows, which is Tales of the Unexpected. Absolutely. Um, Now, again, that marks a really kind of noticeable link back. Tales of the Unexpected, filmed. Often, its location filming is often around. Sure, and the
0: introductory yet. sequence is filmed down on uh, Magdalen Street, which is not a million miles from here either.
1: Yeah. That, what's interesting about um, that is, at least initially, it's Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, mm. and of course, f- therefore, featured Roald Dahl introducing stories that he had already had filmed in a series of different productions, but most, but often notably by Alfred Hitchcock presents. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in a series of ways, it's very much modelled on the kinds of drama that Alfred Hitchcock presents had, had pioneered.
0: Oh no, absolutely.
1: Um, so, in a series of ways, and and quite literally featured often the same stories. Mm-hmm. Um, not exactly with the same actors, but soft, often the same actors would turn up though sure, in different yeah. roles. So um, there's a. Um, noticeable um uh, there's a notable um joseph cotton alfred hitchcock presents where he's a man paralyzed in the car Mm -hmm. and um he turns up again in in tales of the unexpected in a at least one role i can remember i kind of have a feeling it was several (laughs) but that may just be a feeling um so in a series of ways, there is a kind of link back there No, absolutely. Um, in, a, in a whole series of different ways.
0: I think the episode will be showing a Stranger in Town features Derek Jacobi, who I think was a bit of a stalwart of these kind of productions, and is filmed in locations in uh, Norwich and Norfolk, and you can see a lot of really beautiful photography of Cathedral Close in there. So we invite you to come along and see the Tomb of Lagier and A Stranger in Town on the 26th of January, hosted by my guest today, Professor Mark Jankovic. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, it's my pleasure.
0: And uh, tickets available at uh, hallowed-histories.org and then there's a link there to our Eventbrite page. So, hope to see you all there.